The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. The eyes of the world, the eyes of the populations of the world are on you and we have your numbers. That lingering central please remain and we'll see what comes next. We need to make sure that what sits there on a piece of paper is actually going to turn into tangible, actionable projects on the ground that are going to make a difference to people's lives. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Caroline Hepke. Good afternoon, I'm Ewan Potts. So we're back after our festive break to a new year, 2022. The pandemic's still very much with us, but not new COVID restrictions in England, at least. Well, Boris Johnson has admitted that the NHS will remain under strain for weeks because of the rise in infections. But he insists that there is no data suggesting that further restrictions are necessary in England. That's despite several hospitals now declaring critical incidents and the Royal College of Nursing advocating a, quote, more cautious approach, given the sheer volume of staff absences. Here's the chief executive of NHS providers, Chris Hopson. We've been very clear all the way along that the government needs to be ready to introduce tighter restrictions at pace should they be needed. Uh, And the government, you know, as it said, is looking at that data to decide on a daily basis about whether more restrictions um, are needed. So some still advocating for those measures if and when necessary. As for schools, which are beginning to go back today, the government's now advising head teachers to merge classes in preparation for teachers being off sick. Well, let's bring in our guest today, Conservative MP for North Wiltshire, James Gray. Thanks uh, so much uh, for joining us on the show today. Now, it seems that every time government ministers come out, they're telling us that there won't be more restrictions. The data looks like it's probably going to be OK. We don't need uh, any more uh, restrictions on our lives. But the Prime Minister seems to be terribly cautious, saying there's a lot of pressure on the NHS and we need to be careful. It does feel like there's a bit of a case of, of mixed messages here. Not mixed messages, I think, but we're, in, we're being controlled by the epidemic. These numbers are extremely concerning. I mean, they're very high indeed, and the rate of increase is still very high, although I think perhaps slacking off just a slight bit. But that does mean that even if the, even if the virus is less severe than the Delta variant, and nonetheless our hospitals are under huge pressure, at just sheer numbers. And that's what we're already seeing with some of these hospitals declaring a state of emergency or whatever it is. Uh, yesterday and today. So we've got to be very concerned about it. I think we can begin to see the end of it because, as I say, it is much a less severe variant uh, and uh, that, that's encouraging. But the sheer numbers are very worrying. Quite mm. in the last variant, I, I hardly knew anyone had it. Now I know most, most of my friends and relations uh, seem to be testing positive. Yeah, but that's not the message from NHS um, leaders or from businesses, is it? I mean, it's a it's another pandemic, although we don't have a catchy phrase for it this time. But it's about massive staff absences. You know, people are having to stay home, restrictions or no restrictions. I think the staff absences are extremely worrying. Uh, that's right, and this might has in fact not only in the national health service, but also in schools and businesses and elsewhere. It's a bit of a pandemic, but nonetheless, we've got to take it very, very serious. It's a very serious disease indeed. It's far, far worse than flu. It's an extremely serious life-threatening disease, and therefore we have got to take it seriously. I was in two minds about the Plan B, but eventually I supported the government on it. 
I'd be very look very carefully if the government sought to bring in any more changes, any more restrictions, which I personally don't really feel strongly in favour of. But then again, I'm not an epidemiologist, I'm not a scientist, and I really have to listen to what they are advising us to do. And if they tell us to do something and they're serious about it, they know what they're talking about, I'd be one of those who'd be slightly inclined to go along with it. Do you think the Prime Minister could get new measures passed if he brought them to Parliament? Well, I think it depends very much on the Labour Party. And the Labour Party at the moment are saying that they would support the government on new measures or whatever measure might be necessary. Now, there were 101, I think it was, my colleagues who rebelled last time round, and I suspect they would do again, although probably no more than that. Uh, but it's, it, it, we don't want that. We don't, what we want to do what's right for the country, what's right for the nation. Uh, we don't want the Tory MPs rebelling and, and, and all that. It shouldn't be party political. We should be doing the best thing for the nation as a whole. But, but it's deeply party political. I mean, it's even internal party political, surely. Also, the head of the UK's vaccination body, Professor Sir Andrew Pollard, says that it is not sustainable to deliver booster jabs every six months, that injections would have to be restricted only to the most vulnerable people, i.e., you know, big sort of red flag saying that the NHS effectively is cracking under the weight of having to deliver and re-deliver and deliver again vaccine rollouts. Well, the vaccine has been enormously successful, um, and no doubt we will have to have vaccines in the future. I've, I'm, I'm over 60, and therefore I've had my flu vaccine every year for several years now. Mm. And I'm sure something similar may well be necessary in the future. But the great thing is that we, we are developing an immunity. Uh, by, by having the superb rollout of our uh, vaccination program, uh, we are actually developing immunity as a nation, and some people, of course, catching the disease. Uh, and that, of course, must be encouraging. That sooner or later, this thing will become an ordinary, everyday part of our life, rather like flu. But we'll never conquer it. We won't beat COVID. COVID is here to stay. We just have to keep it under control. Do you worry that there's a gulf opening up, not between the Prime Minister and his backbenchers, but between Conservative MPs and public opinion? Public opinion has invariably been in favour of uh, more restrictions and, and more caution on the virus. And Conservative MPs uh, seem to be generally pushing in the other direction. Uh, I think by and large MPs tend to, to represent their constituencies. Certainly in North Wiltshire, most of my people have been saying, well, we're worried about it, we want restrictions, we're prepared to live with restrictions. Maybe that's because we're a slightly more prosperous area than elsewhere in Britain. Um, but no, I think that the MPs weigh up what their constituents tell them, they weigh up what the science is saying, they weigh up what the politics are and the, and the business and the effects on mental health of, of further closures and so on and so forth. They weigh all those things up and they come to their own personal conclusion. I came to the conclusion the government were right in bringing in Plan B. A lot of my good friends and colleagues did not. That's a matter for them, but uh, you know, I, I suspect that probably at, at the end of the day, we all need to do what's right for the people in our constituencies uh, and for the nation, rather than for any kind of personal view on libertarianism or anything else. Okay. Um, the other thing that is hitting families is the cost of living crisis, I'll call it that. I've heard it called eat or heat. In your New Year message, you warn of the rising cost of living this spring. Next month, the energy regulator is likely to announce a big jump in the energy price cap that protects householders, of course. What would you like to see the government do to mitigate this? Well, a great many of us are very concerned about the rising cost of living in general. Inflation itself running about 5%, and that's quite worrying. Uh, and as you correctly say, the cost of, of energy has gone through the roof. It's doubled since this time last year. And everyone's saying it might well go further, because of, not, not least because of the Russians and the, uh, the Ukrainian crisis and all that. Um, so we've got to keep it under control. Um, we're talking about £1,200 per family increase this year. And families just can't afford that. So we've got to keep it under control. That's why a number of us, I think not including me, because I wasn't asked, but 
a number of us wrote to the Prime Minister this week uh, to say that we want to see two things done, really, with regard to uh, energy prices. The first is, he can very easily do it, remove VAT, that's 5% less. Uh, the second thing is that one quarter of your energy bill uh, is uh, for green, uh, green initiatives, uh, and that could be halted temporarily. We could remove them temporarily and bring them back again when the economy is looking better. Uh, and those two things alone would, would go a long way towards uh, relieving the, uh, the pressure on the, uh, on the families all around the country. Of course, there's a price in that, there's cost in it, and the Treasury may well not be enthusiastic. But nonetheless, I think we do have to be aware of the very real crisis that's facing ordinary families up and down the country. So you'd like to see help on rising energy bills, but plenty of other prices are still going up. Council tax likely to go up uh, this spring. Food prices are going up. Many other things as well. Is this a good time for a hike in national insurance? Uh, well, I think the national insurance thing is, is, is now both passed, but also not a hike, of course. All we did was we removed the, the cut in it. Um, you're right. All of these things must be weighed up together. The same thing applies to the removal of the triple lock on the, on the pension all these things have to be weighed up together. The government had to be aware of the cost to, uh, to families. They had to be aware of the, 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 the inflation. And they had to be aware of the uh, increase in, 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 in energy prices in particular. Um, but the, we can't do everything. Uh, we have to pay for the COVID crisis that we're going through. We have to find a way of doing that. We have to balance the books. And therefore, it's a question of balancing up, weighing up which of these things is the best to do. And for me at the moment, I think energy is one of the biggest, biggest issues we're all facing. And therefore, let's try and find some way of doing something about it. Mm, yeah, OK. In the face of, of market forces, of course. On to just one other subject, um, which I know is very close close to you. You supported an amendment to make indefinite leave to remain free for all soldiers, um, uh, soldiers uh, coming from overseas, effectively. Why is that such an important issue to you? This is we kind of debate much tighter restrictions on migration into the UK. Well, about 5,500 soldiers from uh, the British Commonwealth and elsewhere around the world fighting for Britain. And they're so, they served in Afghanistan, Iraq, and in other places around the world. They're absolutely first-class soldiers, many of them, and they're, they're, they're doing just the same job as, as a British soldier would do. But at the moment, and other government consultations at the moment, uh, if they serve for less than 12 years, they do not get indefinite leave to remain after the end of their service. They're just sent home. And uh, that seems to me to be terribly unfair. They, they, these people are British all, to, to all intents and purposes, uh, and they've worked, they, they fought for, for Britain in the army. I think they should be given indefinite leave to remain here with their families. Uh, probably a, a lower figure, perhaps the, the Royal British Legion has suggested it should be after four years, so that, that, that seems to me to make good sense. There's also a problem with regard to cash, because at the moment you've got to pay £2,500 per person to get indefinite leave to remain. And one soldier said to me, I've got four kids. That means they want 15,000 quid uh, from me to remain in the UK. Well, I haven't got it. That's more than my entire annual salary. Uh, and so I simply can't, can't do it to the private soldier. So I think we, the government needs to realise these people are just as much soldiers as anybody okay. else and therefore find a way of allowing them to remain in the UK at an, afford, at an affordable cost. And after a reasonably uh, reasonable length of service, I think four years, maybe six years, would make good sense. Very interesting issue. And just finally, just briefly, do you think 2022 is going to be uh, easier for the Prime Minister, easier for Boris Johnson? We've been through 10 or 15 years of extreme turbulence, what with uh, the Brexit uh, negotiations, the uh, end of Theresa May, three general elections. I very much hope this year will be much, much, much calmer. I want a boring year in politics. <laughs> I want things to get back to normal. I want a reasonably steady, stable thing. I want to see the end of covid the yes. end of Brexit, I want to see the economy under control, 
and therefore, okay. yes, that would make it a significantly easier year for the Prime Minister and for all of us in politics. I think we need to get back to a nice, quiet, steady way of life. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Let's take a look at what else is making news in the world of politics today. Prince Andrew's lawyers will present arguments to a US judge later, asking for a civil case against him to be thrown out. Documents released yesterday show that the woman suing the Duke of York took a payment in order to take no further action against other potential defendants. The prince says that means her lawsuit is barred, but her lawyers say it's irrelevant. Andrew has denied the sexual allegations, sexual assault allegations. Keir Starmer, meanwhile, is attempting to capitalise on Labour's recent poll bounce with a speech in Birmingham today. He has attacked the Conservatives' record in government by drawing attention to GP waiting times and rising taxes. He's also stressing that Labour still has a lot of work to do to gain voters' confidence. And he attempted to strike a patriotic tone at the start of the speech, saying, I want to celebrate the country we live in. Well, the government is to extend pardons for more historical criminal convictions related to homosexual activity. Anyone convicted or cautioned for consensual gay activity under now abolished laws can apply to have them disregarded. The Home Secretary, Priti Patel, says she hopes that the revised scheme will go some way to righting the wrongs of the past. So, some news in the world of politics. Right, let's move on to talk about what's happening with the pandemic in the UK. Joining us now is Oksana Pitsik from the UCL's School of Pharmacy. Sana, welcome back to the programme. Thank you so much for being with us and Happy New Year. Face masks are now back in secondary schools. Pupils are returning to classrooms from today. Just tell me firstly, what is the evidence that whether they are or aren't working? Because I've actually heard arguments on both sides here. Well, we do know that uh, there is strong evidence that there is airborne um, and aerosol transmission as well as droplet transmission for uh, COVID-19. And because Omicron is so much more transmissible and with its ability to reinfect those who've already had prior infection uh, more than any other previous variant, there is more case for face masks now than ever uh, because of the nature of Omicron. Uh, Surgical masks are not perfect, and certainly alone they're not going to prevent a totally break uh, chains of transmission. Uh, we know that medical grade masks like FFP2 um, do a better job at uh, preventing people from breathing in um, COVID-19 um, aerosol. Uh, but we see that, uh, for instance, at UCL, we've had our students wearing masks since the start of term back in September without protest and with wide uptake. Uh, and that has really helped in terms of preventing uh, local outbreaks, uh, even in uh, the, de- the December months, uh, we know that uh, they're not the most comfortable, but it's a small ask to make. But on top of masks, we need to really be talking about air filters. Uh, we need more than 7,000 for the 300,000 class, uh, classrooms that we have. So I think it is time for an Indoor Clean Air Act, just as we demand uh, clean water. And we've had all of those changes historically 
uh, to to allow for changes in building structures, et cetera, uh, for, for health reasons. So that's really the next step. But this is a very reasonable move. Do we know any more about uh, what Omicron means for children? The reports from South Africa, some of those early reports at the end of uh, last year, that uh, children were, were, were getting more sick with Omicron. Have we got any more evidence on that? So we did see from the South African wave that there were a greater no- amount of hospitalizations for children under the age of four. Uh, but this also could be uh, tied to the fact that so many more people were being infected all at the same time. So um, while it, there is um, more, I would say, evidence and data needed to understand the impact of Omicron specifically in children, we are seeing that uh, more age, younger age groups overall are being infected with this. Now, uh, it may be also more mild because we're seeing that people, uh, those that are older, have uh, vaccinations and other layers of protection, including boosters, which have not been available for younger people. Um, However, I think that in order to prevent uh, long COVID complications in children, it is a priority to ensure that we minimize level of infection uh, amongst children just as much as we prioritize for the rest of the population. And vaccinating um, children is uh, the uh, obvious next step. We know that uh, based Mm. on Canada, the U.S., Israel, there's so much data around the safety vaccines in this age group that we can, uh, we're really sort of the last in line to take this up for the younger age group. Yeah, and in the UK, 5- to 11-year-olds who are clinically vulnerable are being offered COVID vaccines, although... um, uh, sort of a weaker formula as far as I understand it. I mean, what is the case for vaccines for, for younger children? You say it's very strong. Do you think that the uptake for younger children will be as strong in Britain as it has been for adults? Well, I think that, uh, again, children live uh, with families and intergenerational settings and um, parents are also very concerned about ensuring that their children aren't, don't develop um, other types of complications because we know that uh, COVID is a multi-system disease. It doesn't just affect the lungs. We know that it also affects uh, the heart and the brain and other organs. So from this perspective, uh, in other countries, there has been very rapid uptake of uh, vaccine for children, including in the U.S. and Canada. Uh, so... I, I would be. Um, I would say that it's likely that we will follow that trend, even with a light, late introduction amongst these younger groups. We were told at the beginning of all of this that the pandemic would end with uh, a, a less dangerous but highly infectious um, variant. That that sounds like Omicron, doesn't it? Is it, uh, should we be optimistic about that? Well, the history of respiratory epidemic shows that. There are wave-like transmissions with peaks and troughs, and each wave so far has been driven by a different uh, variant of concern. So Omicron, in this instance, has set us back, but we're definitely not at square one uh, due to tools like vaccines and treatments and antivirals that are coming out. Uh, For this particular wave, we see it's going to be more like like a hairpin shape. So we're going to go up very steeply and then kind of max out and then come down very quickly. This will certainly not be the last variant. We'll see other variants emerge. But by that time, the global population um, level of vaccine coverage will be higher and will be better equipped for it. So it, we're, we're transitioning into um, from the acute phase of the pandemic 
towards uh, endemic state. Uh, the WHO is even optimistic that that could happen this summer if the appropriate amount of vaccines are say, uh, shared with all other countries, including in low-income settings. Yeah, because if, if Omicron is highly infectious, obviously it spreads very well. That's in terms of, you know, for the virus, that's very successful. And it doesn't seem to kill its uh, its host as much as the other variants. Could, could we then go backwards or, or is this a sort of a winning for, formulation for, for variants or could a, could a more dangerous one emerge? How, how does this work? Well, certainly just because this variant uh, at the moment um, appears to be less dangerous than Delta based on the preliminary data that we have so far. That doesn't preclude, uh, for instance, a, a different variant that uh, is more adaptable in other ways. But there is generally a trade-off. Like with SARS, we see it was very uh, much higher mortality rates, and that limited how, how widespread, uh, it, how many people could infect at the same time. So, again, I think this is probably the last winter where we're going to see um, very critical uh, and difficult decisions to be made around protecting the NHS. Uh, and I mm. think we'll have in future, again, wave-like peaks, but not to the same extent, uh, just due to the fact that our, the, the pace of technology and the fact that we're able to hopefully also, alongside vaccines, get more antivirals that are highly effective in reducing hospitalizations and uh, think, rethinking how we are uh, designing our buildings, having COVID ratings on uh, the standard of ventilation in public spaces, all of yeah. these things together mean that we're just going to be in a very different place in the future. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.